economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gordney Institute. We have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institution, and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, Menard Finn, and Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Dickison, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right. Well, we have a special guest on today. We have Jerry Boyer who is a financial economist, a public speaker for business conferences, a frequent radio and television guest, and an author and a journalist. He wrote a book called The Maker Versus the Takers, and it's something that we're actually doing a book club for our students on here at Ottawa University. And this is a book about what Jesus really said about social justice and economics. He also has a podcast called Meeting of the Minds. And Jerry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Russ. Great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got involved with writing these types of books. Well, I suppose it's because when I was a young man, I was a Marxist, basically a teenager. That happened around age like 12, 13. And I was an atheist, kind of early into critical theory, which wasn't really well known then, but now is very well known, especially the one with the R in the middle, middle, critical race theory. And I left critical theory when I realized that critical theory critiqued everything but itself and that it could not withstand its own skepticism about presuppositions. It it couldn't handle that when it was turned on it. So I became a Christian and it was just essentially natural for me when I became a Christian to also leave socialism but I continued to be interested in the relationship between faith and economics. So that's back at about age 19, right? I just had my 59th birthday yesterday. So (laughs) that's a long time ago and a long time that I've been thinking about this connection. And, you know, during my twenties and thirties, I was a free market person. I was a Christian. I'm not sure that I integrated those super well. I just kind of read what was out there in terms of Christian defenses of the market and uh, basically kind of accepted that narrative. But at, at some point, I decided I wanted to get really serious about what Jesus said about economics, which is not to take my best thinking, whether it's Mises or Hayek or Friedman or Laffer or Mundell, not my best thinking, other, you know, my appropriation of other people's best thinking and hang it on the Bible, even if it's really good thinking, because I think those are all really good thinkers. But still, what I found is we were sort of hanging them on, hanging this on the Bible or going and looking at the Bible, looking for, you know, like an armory to make the case against socialist Jesus, which largely became an argument about what Jesus didn't say rather than about what he did say. So it was like insulating itself from the text. And I thought, well, you know, maybe Jesus is a socialist. I don't think so, but maybe he is. Let's let him speak for himself and stop turning the volume down. So I just did a lot of really in-depth research to let the gospel texts tell me what Jesus was saying, rather than me tell Jesus what he might be saying. And I had no idea that there'd be a book. I had no intention for there to be a book. A friend of mine who's in publishing approached me and said, I really want to do a book with you. 
what are you working on? And I named three topics that I had currently been working on. And this was one of them. And he said, well, that should be a book. And I said, I don't really think so. And he said, no, it should. And we wrestled for, I don't know, like three quarters of a year about that. And eventually I wrote it up as a book. So that's, I think that what your question is, how do I write about stuff like this? It kind of started with just wanting to know. And then, ah, here's an interesting thing. I guess I should write about it. Someone else might be interested. But it was never an attempt to, you know, how thought leadership works. You kind of get a, a brand as a thought leader in a certain topic. And I was never trying to build a thought leader brand or had any anticipation that anyone would be interested. Just wanted to know the truth because I'd heard it sets you free. Yeah. Well, you're in good company with your Marxist roots there. I remember that's basically Thomas Sowell's background, if I remember correctly, too, on when he kind of came to the light, so to speak, of understanding the benefits of free markets and whatnot. So, you know, you brought up critical race theory. I didn't want to, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but when you said you thought it doesn't challenge itself, I was wondering if you could expand on that, that that was the thing that really you don't agree with, with that theory. Well, I think all the critical theories basically bring a deconstructionist approach, even if they're not technically Derrida, et cetera. There's a kind of a tear down impulse, a hermeneutics of suspicion. And I came to that through Fabian socialists. My grandfather was a, an atheist and a Fabian socialist, but a practicing capitalist, a small business owner. When he died, I was about 13, I inherited his library. And I read a lot of books that basically said, your priest, your president, you know, these people who are telling you things, you never really question them, right? So you need to start questioning them. So I read Nietzsche and I read Marcuse, and they were all about questioning the fundamental premises of our society then, right? This is, you know, 60s or uh, late 60s, early 70s. They're about a hermeneutics of suspicion. All, you know, these, your assertions are essentially where you stand depends on where you sit. Your assertions are some kind of rationalized self-interest. Your rules are really coded rules of patriarchy or capitalism or white privilege, depending on which kind of reductionism, which kind of critical theory we're talking about. The rules of grammar are instruments of oppression, right? So very suspicious about everybody except themselves, right? I mean, Marx says, look, every, everything that everybody does basically is their economic interest. Well, how about you, Carl? How about your writing? Is it economic interest? If Freud says, oh, pretty much it's all sublimated sexual desire. Okay, Freud, how about your books? Are they sublimated sexual desire? Darwin says, basically, we're not really minds. We're just you know, bundles of instinct that are selected for survival, not for truth. You know, okay, Charlie, how about you? Are you also just an animal? And are, are these long books of yours just really complicated instinctual responses? And then I think in the mid 20th century with the deconstructionists and the other critical theorists, and I know I'm glomming together groups, but they kind of do sort of glom together in camps. They turn their skeptical eye on Christianity, on Western civilization, et cetera, but they never turn it on their own presuppositions. And once you do that, they're less defensible than the things they're attacking. So that's why I abandoned that. I didn't think it was defensible. I, I didn't abandon it because I don't like that it calls me names or tells me that I'm fragile because I'm white. I, I don't really care about that. So I would care if I'm a racist, but I don't care if someone thinks I'm a racist if I'm not. 
So the accusational element of it was not really that important to me. It just didn't wash epistemologically, theory of knowledge speaking. So I couldn't accept that. And so I went to Christianity because I thought it had a more sound foundation. And Christianity could critique itself and still survive. Christian theorists could say we're all fallen and therefore our reasoning is suspicious and still survive that self-inquiry because you have a revelation from God who isn't fallen. So with the hermeneutics of suspicion, you can't tear down everything. There has to be something that can't be torn down. Otherwise, you don't have a, something you can stand on. And yeah. the only, you know, kind of paraphrasing here on some, you know, that greater than which nothing can be conceived. The only being who could possibly serve as a foundation for knowledge is an infinite, eternal, omniscient God. Yeah, Jerry, I fully agree with that. And in some ways, yeah, I feel like you're taking the words right out of my brain, maybe stating them even better than I could. And <laughs> so one of the things that I appreciated in your intro was your comments that you became wary of trying to basically read markets or capitalism into the Bible and thought that a lot of you know the support for markets that was in Christian circles tended to do that. And I feel that way as well. I've noticed that too, is it seems to be that uh, we have our ends of, you know, free markets, and then we try to build a bridge to that end with the Bible, which is, you know, exactly the opposite of how we should work with the Bible. And so you, can you tell us a little bit instead about what your process was and the, some of the things that you found reading Jesus's work on earth that, you know, what, what did you find about Jesus and his relationship with markets and inequality and the ruling class and things like that? Yeah, I'm glad that you keyed in on that because that's really, to me, that's like the main thing. The main thing is not in the end, is Jesus socialist or not? The main thing is to let Jesus speak. Mm -hmm. And methodologically, what I saw is a couple of camps of free market conservatives responding to Jesus. One was, if you play the Jesus record, boy, I sound really old. If you play the Jesus (laughs) MP3 (laughs) and you on your iTunes or whatever, you play that and you're at a quarter volume, he sounds a little socialist. And what I saw is conservatives kind of developing different coping strategies for that. And they were basically hitting a pause button or turning the volume down. One of the ways to turn the volume down is, you know, Bill Buckley, I write for National Review, I've done it for a long time, but when people would quote Jesus to Bill Buckley, say quoting the Sermon on the Mount, he had a rejoinder, which is, well, when the kingdom comes, you know, then we can talk about that. Basically conceding that Jesus was a liberal and a pacifist and everything. But I guess we can only take Jesus seriously after the second coming. But I think New Testament is clear that Jesus says the kingdom has come. Now, there's a already not yet, but there's just no avoiding it. So pushing Jesus off into the eschatological you know, future is a way of basically saying, I don't, I don't want to hear from Jesus just yet, right? Another thing is to turn it down to just spirituality or motives, right? So the rich young ruler is entirely about that man's heart attitude towards wealth, even though there's nothing in, the, in, in any of the gospel texts about his heart attitude towards wealth. And there are many times in the gospel text where Jesus discerns that they were thinking or discerns what they were saying, and the Bible points that out. But that doesn't happen in that account, right? But we kind of reduce it down to only our heart attitude. So that story is, why does he have to give it away? Well, he's a money idolater, and that's why he has to give it away and we don't. All right, so 
That's the what not to do. Or there was also the argument from silence. Jesus says give to the poor, but he doesn't say government, right? Well, okay, there's a lot of things he doesn't say we still do. So arguments from silence are pretty weak in general. I mean, there's sometimes they're valid, but you know, sometimes the dog that didn't bark is evidence, but generally an argument from silence is not a strong form of argument. So what did he say, right? So let me boil it down to this. Methodologically, what I did is to take a very close look at geography and occupation in terms of the historical background of the gospels. So rereading the gospel text with a kind of mental map that basically says, here is the economy of ancient Israel. And this region did this, and this region did that, and this region produced this, and this region had high taxes, and this region had low taxes, and this region was entrepreneurial, and this region was dominated by the state. And these occupations had these elements to them. Like these occupations were extractive by nature, and these occupations weren't. And then essentially to go back and overlay the gospel accounts of Jesus traveling around paying attention to where he was and to whom specifically he was speaking instead of skimming over place names and occupation names because we don't, you know, we don't know what Bethsaida, Bethany, Bethlehem, you know, a lot of people apparently liked Beth in ancient Israel. <laughs> they named their cities after her. You know, we don't know that stuff. So we skim that over as unimportant. When in fact, the Bible brings an enormous amount of attention to it. There's a whole lot of, I sent him to Nazareth. My son's going to be born in Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's why that stuff's going on. We skip it. So that's the methodology. And what we find there is not Jesus who's spiritualizing away economics or eschatologizing it away. He is very actively engaged in the economic debates of his time. If we and just let him who has ears hear what he's saying. Yeah. Well, this looks like a good spot to go for our break. And when we come back, I'd like you to expand some of those stories about specific places like you do in in your book and give at least one example of that. And uh, we'll go from there. We'll be back in just a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode. So please send your questions to info at gordoninstitute.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have a movie night coming up here at the university where we're gonna do a screening of the House of Cards to bring up the issues of cronyism and how big government and big business uh, playing kissy face is no good and it's certainly not capitalism as we envision it here at the Gordon Institute. If you or someone else is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, and we're back. And the cliffhanger I left with was uh, you giving us some examples of these plays. I found it really fascinating to think about the type of products that were made in a particular area and whether they were kind of the, let's call it lower class or middle class or upper class in the in the city. I um one of those stories that you thought was the most compelling for you, uh, which one did you like the best that maybe can grip our listeners? I think the breakthrough story for me was to take a closer look at the account of Jesus's confrontation with the rich young ruler. Because 
that is probably the go-to story mm-hmm. yes. for Jesus and wealth, because in a commentary on that account, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man <laughs> to enter the kingdom of heaven or enter the kingdom of God. It's almost always misquoted as it's you know, easier to enter heaven, right? The for a rich man to enter heaven. And that's, that's not what he says. Entering the kingdom of heaven is conversion. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't make sense with the parallel version, you know, between Matthew and Mark and Luke, where enter the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God. You don't enter God, right? Um, you enter the kingdom of God. When do you do that? When you become his child. But the other thing that's really, there's a misquote there, obviously, we just talked about. The other thing that's really kind of skimmed over, two things, really. Where were they geographically? In Mark's account, this is almost immediately when entering Judea. And what was this man's occupation? He was an archon, a ruler. You can translate it as senator, city council in some context, but it's basically someone who is a member of a ruling class, usually of like a permanent ruling assembly. And so there is a socioeconomic picture here that we, we skip over. So just a little bit of background here. The big division in Israel's economy was Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. Yes, you have Samaria in between, but we just, there's not, that's not like the main thing going on. Galilee was lower tax. They didn't have the uh, tribute tax. Um, It was more decentralized in terms of authority. You You didn't have anything like the capital. Judea is dominated by Jerusalem. You know, so like an analogy here would be if you're looking at, you know, the environs of Washington, D.C. Yeah, there are other things going on in Virginia and Maryland, but pretty much D.C. is like the behemoth. Government is the behemoth in Washington, D.C., and that's kind of the dominant power in the region. But you go to go to the West Coast, you've got kind of a different situation. So the Judean economy was dominated by the temple and the Herodians and essentially the extractive class. You had high levels of taxation, you had a hierarchical society, and you had a whole bunch of ways that the ruling class, and we, we can't make the same distinction we make in our modern world between political and religious because they were the same thing, right? The temple was controlled by Herod. It was Herod's temple. So Galilee, more entrepreneurial, more dynamic, faster growing. Some archaeologists I read recently said, if you, if you dig up any town, any village in Galilee, you find three or four shops. So like Joseph and Foster Son Builders. So that's a more entrepreneurial economy. You have in the Gospels, zero examples of confrontations over wealth in Galilee. It just does not happen. Well, no one was rich in Galilee. Completely untrue. Uh, Jesus grew up quite near to Sepphoris, two hours walk, commute distance. Sepphoris has mansions. Now, people who were writing 200 years ago don't know about that. But in the past 30 years, we've dug up the mansions. There there was a wealthy marketplace driven, you know, trade hub, you know, right next to Jesus. The road, the Via Maris, major trade thoroughfare kind of just went just south of Nazareth. You know, so this is kind of bustling and it's very economic and wealth is being generated through trade and production. 
And we can go through the different industries over there with Capernaum and Bethsaida. It is commercial fishing. It's not subsistence fishing. It's fishing, processing, export. And there are other places. Sepphoris is a trading hub, a financial hub. Jesus grew up near the financial capital of Galilee. So there are rich people there. Jesus had wealthy friends, Joseph of Arimathea, an import-export. There's a little bit of maybe a, we should be a little skeptical about xenophobia and trade protectionism. Because Jesus sure hung out with a lot of people who were unpatriotically trading, you know, with uh, <laughs> foreign entities. And I, I, we don't ever hear him say, what are you doing? You know, they're evil. These Gentiles are evil. Instead, it's use your influence, you, you know, use your association. Every confrontation Jesus has over wealth happens after he goes down into Judea. And every one of those confrontations is with somebody who, whose occupation is based on extraction, starting with the rich young ruler and then going on to Zacchaeus the tax collector, and then down into Jerusalem and into the temple itself with the money changers. So let's stick with the rich young ruler. There are numerous indicators here that he was living extractively. We won't won't get into all of them. There's a whole chapter on this, but he was a ruler. He was also a young ruler and he was rich. You didn't have tech entrepreneurs in ancient Israel. If somebody became rich, if someone's a member of the ruling class and they're rich, they've essentially inherited it and they're extractive. How do we know that? Because a couple of reasons. One, James, Jesus's brother, later in the letter of James, the epistle of James, calls out that class as being extractive. Do not rich men oppress you and defraud you, which is extraction, and drag you before the magistrates, the judgment seats. So James isn't saying once in a while they do it. This was the very nature of the ruling class. So if you're looking at like members of the party in Maoist China or the nomenclatura in Russia, you don't say, well, some of them were members of an extractive class. It, that was the business model of the ruling class. All right. And then the other thing is, this is in Mark's account, and it really, when you read it carefully, it really jumps out, which is when he asks about, you know, well, you know the commandments, right? And then Jesus lists the commandments. He lists the Ten Commandments but he includes something that isn't in the Ten Commandments. He's, you do not steal, right? Do not murder. Do not defraud, a festero. Do not defraud. Do not defraud is not one of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud is already covered under do not steal. So Jesus is doubling down on a particular form of stealing, which is the use of fraud. Exactly the same word as Brother James uses 20 years later to describe the ruling class. So what's going on? Did Jesus forget which things are in the Ten Commandments or not? <laughs> no, I, I think the much more elegant solution is that this young man who's saying, oh, yes, I keep these. It's like, maybe you didn't hear. Let me say it again. Do not defraud. He was living by defrauding. And there are a lot of little other Greek choices here that indicate that, that we probably don't need to get into. So that once you get that, then the paradigm shifts, and then you see Zacchaeus differently, and then you see the money changers differently. And then you can go on and see the parables differently. Jesus is actively engaged in a rhetorical war against the abuses of the ruling class using state power extraction to take from the productive classes. That's why it's the maker versus the takers. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the maker incarnate and sociologically he sides with makers against takers. I can't help but wonder if... uh... Uh, Bastiat's legal plunder, if he was influenced at all through that, I doubt it, uh, because I think this is 
all kind of pretty fresh stuff. Peter, you had a question? Yeah. So uh, Jerry, and I, I think you mm-hmm. even touched a little bit on, on the area of my question, which is I, I totally buy the argument after, after reading through the book. And, and I, I, I don't think that you were reading all into, uh, which is the nice contrast. I don't think you were reading this at all into scripture. I think like this, you put a really good case out that this is like in Jesus's actions. And you really see this with his, like you said, the, the contrast between what he says in Galilee versus what he says in Judea. I wonder to what extent, I, I know you, the two are kind of mixed together, which you alluded to, but I wonder to what extent the message Jesus is bringing down is that he dislikes the idea of religious leaders engaging in using some sort of extractive political process. Because one thing I don't, I don't notice is that Jesus doesn't really confront Rome, which you would think would be the, the cream of the crop when it comes to the extractive groups out there. I mean, Judea, in, in comparison, maybe has more of an effect on his life, but certainly Rome is, you know, over and above even that. And if anything, G- Jesus has a, you know, we have the render unto Caesar line. Of course, we, we don't have to go down that whole rabbit hole in the podcast, but he doesn't seem to deal with political corruption as it comes to the Romans. And so to what extent do you think Jesus is bothered by, you know, political extraction versus political extraction used within, you know, what we could call the religious authorities of the time? Yeah, I think that's that's an element there. I can just tell you when I look out there politically, I'm a man of the right or center right or whatever. I'm more bothered when my folks do crazy things than I am when they do crazy things, right? Sure. So, yeah. because that hurts our cause, mm. you know? So, yeah. so yeah. if the left says something that destroys their credibility, I guess my view is, well, I'm not so bothered <laughs> you know, if they lose credibility. I'm bothered when we use credibility. So I think Jesus sees Israel as the solution to the problem of the world. And if the religious leaders of Israel are not getting it right, then how, how's Rome going to be fixed, right? Because Israel's supposed to fix Rome by teaching, right? That's just, he confronts the money changers. This is supposed to, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're engaged with self-dealing, you've destroyed your ability to credibly interact with Rome. That's one. Number two, he does deal with the Rome thing indirectly because his, confront, his confrontation was Zacchaeus. The publicans got their tax farming they bought their tax for- farming licenses from Rome. So there are two extractive classes. One is tied to Herod and the temple, enabled by the Pharisee scribal class. The other is the extractive classes that are associated with Rome. And Jesus does seem to have a soft spot, kind of a softer spot there. I think another reason might be that, again, I'm just going to assume a lot. I can argue for it, but I don't have time to argue for it. I think one of the other political things that Jesus is arguing for is a violent revolt against the superpower of Rome is going to end badly. So I I think a lot of pacifist Jesus is really Galilean peasant wisdom Jesus. Yeah. Like, wait, you're going to you think you're going to that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that part of the reason that you understand that is I loved in the book that you bring up basically the destruction of the temple. You know, this is something that like it's it's not in the Bible. So Christians like frequently miss that, like just 30 years later, the temple is totally destroyed. And it's because of this attempts to overthrow Rome. So I loved that in the book. And, and I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, it's attempt to overthrow Rome and also the economic factors. Uh, yeah. The lack, I mean, the the extraction gets so out of control that. You never really had a middle class per se, but you have something like a middle class and that's gone. So you basically you have kind of an Austrian boom bust cycle. You have a you have 
uh, manipulation of the currency. You have this building boom. Building boom ends in 64 AD. The war starts in 66 AD. 18,000 people get laid off. And by the way, the, the debt had been getting higher and higher. So you have a highly indebted society. The middle class is essentially destroyed by, the, by those layoffs. And this thing starts with a debt revolt. So I think Jesus is doing a whole lot more of watching out for people's skins than we usually, we think it's all about your souls and that the only fire Jesus is concerned about is hellfire when he's actually concerned about this whole city being burned to the ground. And he even says it, don't weep for me. One of the way of crucifixion, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children, because this is what happens when the wood is green, what's going to happen when it's dry. I'm sorry. I don't think that's a, you know, you better not go. If you don't, if you're not careful, you're going to go to hell comment. I think if you're not careful, this whole society is going to become hell on earth. And that's part of the economic warning. So the rich young ruler thing, I think kind of ties into that. So back to your Rome. I think Jesus is trying to get Israel to not revolt against Rome, but to disciple Rome. So he probably doesn't have a strong interest in like playing up Rome's Rome's sins. They already knew that. They were walking around every day hating Rome. So that one didn't need more kerosene. So another thing is, I'm reading a lot of the new literature on this. Rome was extractive. But up in Galilee, Rome was actually bringing market-based institutions. So Rome is creating some, some of our modern economic institutions. And there's this whole emerging literature where market institutions are kind of coming into Galilee. They're coming from the coast and they're coming and they're passing through around the time Jesus is a little boy. So Jesus is encountering market institutions as a new thing in his region. So even though Rome was extractive, most of the extraction was down south with the tribute tax. Rome is also bringing marketplace institutions through trade. So I think that that's what Jesus is seeing. And so we can look at Jesus, the son of man is here. And it's like he grows, you know, his generation before would have grown up with a barter economy. And now a market economy is there. And Jesus is living there with it. He can look there and there's a barter economy. and He can look to a small village and see a barter economy. You can look at Sepphoris and see a market economy and he can weigh them and evaluate them. And when you put that in context, Jesus is shockingly friendly to a market economy in his parables. Because basically there was a certain suspicion. What is all this, these pagans with their pagan money and their pagan ways? And Jesus is essentially taking these Roman market institutions and like using them in little business case studies, which are theological stories in which God plays the role of the owner, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, right. and, and the ruling class plays the role of the unjust steward. So economists, you'll, you'll get this. He's dealing with, he does point out agency problem. I mean, right from the beginning, Jesus sees market institutions. Wow. These are really helpful, but there is an agency problem when you separate ownership from management. So he's also seeing, you know, what can go wrong with these market-based institutions. Yeah. Take really it. fascinating. I'm sorry. No, go I, you've got me really interested in Galilee. And I was wondering if you had other resources, uh, writers who have written about Galilee, or is this kind of cutting edge where you're at and the stuff you're talking about? I think right now we're at the point where we've got books that are collections of journal articles that are, have come out really in the past five or six years. Okay. So unless you're unless you're subscribing to 
biblical archaeology technical journals, you're not getting this stuff except very recently. So I'm not upset with the church for not knowing this stuff. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. basically, Galilean archaeology starts about 1980. Almost all of the digging has happened, you know, in our adult lifetime. So I find David Finnessy, F-I-E-N-S-Y, is very helpful in this. He's edited the two largest collections of essays about the Galilean archaeology that were published by Fortress, I think, 2014, 2015. And he's also written some of his own stuff. There's an older writer, Sean Frame, F-R-E-Y-N-E, who's done a lot of writing about market institutions hitting Galilee. That's more reading documents than archaeology, but it's still there. A lot of stuff is just spread out. You just got to read Josephus. You have to read Philo. You have to read Tacitus. It's just, it's really odd because like, I don't know if you read the section about, you know, the uh, financial crisis of 32 AD. Yeah. 32, 33, there's a essentially Roman financial crisis, deflationary credit crisis, like 2008-9. Well, there's a whole lot about that from Roman historians. They're all over it. But, you know, and they're saying, oh, 32, 33 AD. Yeah, was, other stuff happened around then too, but they don't then go into the gospel text. That's not their job. Yeah. Then you've got yeah. all these New Testament scholars who you, maybe Jesus was crucified 31, maybe 32, 33, but sometime around then. But none of them seem to know that there was almost none of them seem to know that while that's going on, you have this the worst financial crisis in Roman history. And it's like, so bringing those things together means you got to go read Tacitus, who isn't saying anything about the crucifixion. He's just talking about the financial crisis. And then you got to go back and read the Gospels and then read Pontius Pilate who was politically aligned with the banking clans and help understand why he's such a softy on these crowds when Pontius Pilate over and over again, anytime a mob came out and made demands of Pontius Pilate, he sent out the soldiers to kill them. In this case, he gives in. Does it matter that his political allies are completely discredited at this point and that he has no juice politically? Well, let me tell you what I think I'd like to read, Jerry, is your next book on those collection of all those writings. So I think you've got, I think you're onto something because I think that could be really neat. It sounds like the seeds of uh, free enterprise and then the ties to the Bible focusing more in on Galilee sounds very interesting. Uh, I, I will definitely buy that book. <laughs> well, I, so I have to count the cost. Are there enough of you who will buy that book? Yeah, you got one. So I have marginal cost, marginal benefit. I don't know if we're there I, at yet. At this but. point, I'm still at sub-minimum wage when I look at <laughs> sales compared to hours of effort. But the good thing is I didn't do it for the book. But I'm probably still even at sub-minimum wage when it comes to writing it down as a book and editing it. So this one was a labor of love. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Justin? Yeah, Jerry, I had one question. I, I really enjoy your methodology of kind of seeing Jesus as meeting people where they're at and reading Jesus as meeting people where they're at. And I liked your meth methodological approach in which it seems like you're saying you're kind of trying to put your priors aside and just say what you find in the Bible as it's written. And so I was wondering, were there any overarching themes or stories that you found surprising? And it could be surprising in one or two ways. One that, it, you know, actually agreed with your priors and you found that interesting or another in maybe a lesson that made you reevaluate some of your priors. So if, if either of those came up, I think that'd be interesting. to hear. Yeah, let's go with the latter. because That's more interesting. Where was I wrong? 
by the way, is that a little call out to the Reverend Thomas Bayes there, the uh, reference to priors? Is that a little <laughs> Bayesian reasoning there? <laughs> I have to call out where I can. Yeah, I, I, I love it. You bring them back. Bayesian statistics. Yes. And, and I actually was, I didn't write about it because this isn't a statistical book, but I was thinking in terms of Bayesian priors and what's called inverse inference, uh, inverse probability calculation. None of that's there, but it is how I approach the text. You start with a prior and then you observe, and then your observations either reaffirm or disconfirm your priors, right? There's a lot of people are saying, what is he talking about? Sorry, you can just forget all that. It's just the common sense is you've got presuppositions, but you have to compare those presuppositions to, the, to what you see. And after you've done that, you, unless you were perfect, your, pre, your presuppositions have to have shifted. Okay, so what did I not want to find, not expect to find, but did find? Because I'm a free market conservative, and because in my particular context, when I was a conservative Christian in the 20s, I was attending conferences held by evangelicals, like the Jubilee Conference, et cetera, where everybody, they were all pushing from the left, the Sandinistas are great, and they were going on and on about the Jubilee laws. And they were using the Jubilee laws to justify basically taking farmland at the point of a gun and giving it to peasants who didn't know how to farm it in the interest of social justice. And so I think that's a misuse of the Jubilee and Shemitah laws. I guess I have to explain those. Land goes back to the ancestral home every 50 years and debts aren't forgiven every seven years. And the left was trying to use that. They, they were treating it as redistributionary. I don't think it is redistributionary. If I make a contract with you and you understand that in the seventh year, that's not enforceable any longer, then I, there's been no extraction, right? Now, now, if we have a debt agreement and then the rules change, government comes along and says, oh, well, we're going to cancel the debt. Now that's redistribution. So, but nevertheless, I was highly resistant to a Jubilee slash Shemitah debt forgiveness Jesus. And the text just dragged me kicking and screaming away from my prior from my tribal gut feelings, like, oh, that's going to give the socialists what they want. And I just always had, I, everybody who I heard arguing for Shemitah and Jubilee went on to make a crazy economically indefensible conclusion based on that. And I am now thoroughly convinced that I was wrong, that the, that the 70, forgive 70 times seven, we won't have time to get into the detail. It'll sound crazy without the detail, is almost certainly a reference to the Jubilee and Shemitah laws. Uh, and a reference to the 490 years that Israel was in exile for not following those laws. It's followed by a parable about debt forgiveness. I think that that parable about debt forgiveness is about debt forgiveness. The ruling class was not forgiving the debts as Torah called upon them to do. And that explains the ancient mystery of why Jesus uses a crazy high number for the amount that is forgiven 10,000 talents. All the commentators are like, ah, oh, Jesus is exaggerating. There's no number that large. You know, it's just a, it's like a bazillion, you know, no merchant would have owned that much. Nobody, yes, oh, stop. It, think of it as a macroeconomic number and it fits. You know, that's roughly six years GDP. I back into a calculation of six years GDP of Galilee. That's the amount that, you know, was forgiven. So I, I, I just can't avoid that anymore. I think Jesus, he's a rabbi. He's reasserting 
the Jubilee and the Shemitah. Now, how we apply that now, we're not Israel. That's a different question. I don't even deal with that question. I, I mean, but that's definitely one where I had to change my mind. So I just briefly want to comment. I'm not sure if we're on the same page or not. The, the authors that I've seen write on that basically said that the payments for the land was a rental lease type of contract where at the Jubilee time where it's time to go over, the payments were adjusted such that basically the lease runs out. Um, so the value of the land was kind of calculated that in three years, it's going to revert back. And so the debt forgiveness was kind of a contract stoppage. Have you heard stuff like that before? Oh, in regard sure. to Jubilee? Absolutely. Okay. And I've made arguments like that. And I think okay. they're good arguments. Yeah. So, but nevertheless, simply because the other tribe talked about Jubilee and Shemitah, I resisted it. Now, what you can do is say, Jesus is affirming it, which I now believe, and then go on and argue that it's not redistributive. And I think those are, those are good arguments. And I, look, I think they misunderstood it terribly. I mean, the, the society that's being created by the Jubilee law is not some, you know, San, Nicaragua after the revolution. It's more like Downton <laughs> Abbey. You know, you keep the land in the ancestral family forever. It's more like prim primogenitor. So it's really, in many ways, a conservative, maybe not supermarket, but a conservative institution in that you keep continuity and land ownership. So I would agree with all those arguments. People can adjust for that. They, you know, that's taken into account. But what's Jesus doing, right? Jesus, I think, is affirming it. And he's attacking the religious elite because the scribes and Pharisees came up with a new rule, the prosbol, which was a workaround. So that... And I think this is a part of what's going on with Jesus in the temple. If you owe me money, if I've got paper on you, right? Oh, the seventh year is coming up. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I can sell that paper. I can factor my receivable to the temple. And the scribes argued that the temple, only individuals are covered by these debt release rules. So I can take the present value of your eternal payment because you're never going to catch up. Um, <laughs> I've got an annuity in you. I can take the present value of that by factoring my receivable to the temple. So the temple becomes the center of economic exploitation. Over time, people who can't pay their taxes have to therefore borrow to pay their taxes. There's, the big is running forever. They never catch up. So little by little, the middle class is becoming enslaved to the temple, which was also a bank which was a workaround to the prosbol. So I can get why Jesus is saying to the temple, to these leaders, you are devouring widows' houses because that's exactly what they're doing, they're devouring widows' houses. Yeah, the road to serfdom early on. So It is, <laughs> well, this, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, this right. looks right. like a good- I, I know you want to end, but I, I can't stop myself. <laughs> no, go one, for it, go for it. Every transaction with the temple involved rent-seeking because the temple required the temple shekel to be used and the temple shekel had a- a cheap parity with the pagan money it was traded for. So you had to spend twice as much regular silver to get the equivalent in temple silver. Mm -hmm. So every time you're doing any transaction with the temple, there's a 100% upsell on the currency trade because you had a fixed fee that was enforced by law that did not, that did not actually re reflect market value. Um. And that's and you want to understand why Jesus is upset at the money changers? 
maybe we put yeah. put it in that context. Right, right. All right. Well, Jerry, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, sorry, I know I go on a little long. No, but, uh, no, no. This has been great. Yeah, and great. We look forward to uh, seeing your book for our upcoming book club here. And uh, I think the students will get a lot out of it. So we re- really appreciate it. I, I appreciate you coming. All right. Well, this is a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, If you like what you hear, uh, be sure to give us a five-star rating on your appropriate app. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.